Happy New Year, Crossroads. We enjoying this or not? Yep. I turned 50 this year, you know. <laughs> it's just another day. And it's just another year. Anyway, this text that we have today, I'm just going to give a warning right now. Um, it, it's going to be a little bit like a two by four. It's going to hit. It's going to hit hard. And um, I, I want to be a people that we know that we need that. Like, that, that's a good thing. Um, I need this this morning. If, if this sermon is only for me and my heart and my life, um, th- then let it be. But um, I've lived enough life to know that the best things, the things that, that bring life, that, that change life, come out of the hard, whether it's the hard places or, or the hard truths. Um, so that's just a little bit of a warning also going to be a little bit rated R today, um, so you probably know some of the subject matter. Um, gives parents time right now to get out. Obviously, I'm going to be very careful, um, not too descriptive, but anyway. Okay, we are in the book of Numbers, and Numbers describes the part of the story, God's people between Egypt, the thing they're called out of. In promised land, the thing that God's calling them into, it's that, that space between um, 40 years in that space, in that desert. And why desert? Why these 40 years? There's so many ways that you could uh, answer that question. I think the best answer comes from what I think is the greatest work of theology out there. Um, in fact, if you're looking to read a good theological work this year in, in 2020, uh, get the children's storybook Bible. Uh, there's nothing like it. And uh, I'll take you to the beginning, uh, to this good world that God made and how it became so broken. Um, it's something theologians call the fall, uh, the sin of Adam and Eve. And this is how this reads. You see, sin had come into God's perfect world, and it would never leave. God's children would be always running away from him and hiding in the dark. Wow, that just describes it so well. Their hearts would break now and never work properly again. God couldn't let his children live forever, not in such pain, not without him. So there was only one way to protect them. You will have to leave the garden now, God told his children. His eyes filled with tears. This is no longer your true home. It's not the place for you anymore. But before they left the garden, God made clothes for his children to cover them. He gently clothed them, and then he sent them away on a long, long journey out of the garden, out of their home. Well, in any other story, it would all be over, and that would simply be the end. And it could be the end. It should be the end. And this is the tragedy of Genesis 3. The tragedy of Genesis 3 is that the garden is lost. The world lost the garden of God, and therefore the world falls back into chaos. It goes dark. And when the world lost the garden, it not only lost God, but it lost the place where humanity was plugged into God. It lost the power source where Adam and Eve were plugged into God, where they knew God, where God's presence flowed in them and where it was flowing out of them into all creation. And this is why God instructed Adam, guard the garden, preserve it with your life. And he didn't. And it should be the end. But God so loved the world. And God didn't give up on the world that he loves. And his intention then is to replant the garden, to rebuild his home, to raise up a whole nation of Adam and Eves who will be plugged into God and will priest God's powerful, life-changing presence into all creation. And that's what Numbers is about. 
Numbers is about God taking his people to this place called the desert where he is re-imaging the image of God in them. He's remaking them. He's restoring them to his likeness. And more importantly, he's replanting that garden. He's pitching his tent among their tents. Um, and, and this is the context of today's story. Turn to Numbers 25. Because God's people now have come to the end of these 40 years. They're about ready to leave the desert and go into the promised land where they will be the garden of God. I believe it's on page 127 in your Bibles. Um, Let's stand for the reading of God's word. While Israel was staying in Shittim, Very unfortunate name for a place. (laughs) That's a little foreshadowing because the Shatim is about ready to hit the fan. (laughs) Sorry, but a little humor today, okay? (laughs) The men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods, so Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. The Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took his spear in his hand and followed the Israelite into the tent. And he drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite and into the woman's body. And then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, for he was as zealous as I am for my honor among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Therefore, tell him, I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood, because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. This is God's word. You can be seated. So if you were here last week, uh, we learned about how the Moabites and the Midianites are threatened by this upstart nation called Israel because they clearly see that the Lord is with them, and, and the arm of the Lord is, is, is fighting on behalf of them. So Israel now has made its way out of the desert and is just outside of uh, the promised land, right there by the Jordan River and the Dead Sea, uh, along a plain there, and that's, that's Moabite country, and the Moabites and Midianites conspire to rid the earth of these Israelites. And last week we learned uh, plan A was uh, they find this world-famous sorcerer, Balaam. And I know he's world-famous because Balaam doesn't just show up in our biblical text, but he also shows up in uh, Babylonian text, Assyrian text. Uh, he's a big deal. So they, they, they hire this, this sorcerer, uh, Balaam, to pronounce this hex or this curse on, on Israel to, to damn them. And what Balaam does is he goes up on a high mountain overlooking the tents of Israel, and he opens his mouth intending to curse Israel, uh, but all that comes out of his mouth are the words of God, and it's words of blessing and blessing uh, upon Israel. So plan A is a total fail. Now they are going to resort to plan B, which we just read in our text. If we can't curse them, let's seduce them. And so what they do is they send their women into 
uh, Israel's camp and invite the men over for these visits. And uh, it's, it's pretty easy to discern what these visits uh, were about because verse 1 says they got them to indulge in sexual immorality. In fact, it literally reads, Israel played the whore. And this whoring that Israel participated in was actually through the worship of the Moabite god Baal, the Baal of Peor. Now, we don't automatically uh, put religion and in, in sex together as, as being one and the same. In fact, quite the contrary. Uh, in our minds, religion restricts sex. It puts boundaries on sex. Religion says thou shalt not about sex or aspects of sex. That's not true in the ancient world. In fact, in the ancient world, so much of the worship was sexual. And, and the reason for this is, well, the things that we take for granted, things like food and water and fertility, um, the, the ancients actually, in their minds, knew that they needed these things annually to survive. And so the gods that they worship, the Baal in particular, um, were the gods that promised these things. Baal and Asherah are what give us rain, what give us food, what give us water, what give us fertility. In fact, um, in their superstition, um, they, they believed that the rains were Baal's sperm and the earth was Asherah's womb and that, you know, every year these two needed to mate uh, to bring those rains. And they also had this superstition that the way you get the gods to act the way you want them to act is you mimic before them the very thing that you want them to do. So to get Baal and Asherah to mate, their act of worship was to go to a temple or a high uh, place and do just that. So the temples in the ancient world, the high places, were essentially brothels and the priests and priestesses that served at these temples were essentially prostitutes. In fact, this, this term Baal Peor, um, the word Peor here is, is slang for a woman body part. This literally means Lord of the Opening. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's how they think. It's, it's, it's what worship is. Uh, worship and sex are together. And we look at these ancients and, and we think, wow, we, we look down on them for being so superstitious, which we should. But I do think they understood something that we fail to understand today. And that is that sex is more than just sex that there is a spiritual force, a spiritual power attached to it. And today, we, we've been taught to think that sex is just another pastime. I mean, we, we, we take things like hooking up, messing around, pornography, and we put them in the same bucket as going out and playing tennis or a round of golf or reading a book. That's not the bucket that those things belong in. They belong in the bucket of crack cocaine, heroin. There's massive power within the realm of sex, sexuality, and that sort. And Balak is right. I mean, he, he, he knows that that this power could, could literally take Israel out. That could be this tsunami that, that, that he could generate that will destroy the people of Israel. Because it is, it, sex just spins this nasty web that at first seems very harmless, but very quickly, a person feels so entangled in it and so stuck and then the stinger comes in and just sucks all the life out of a person. 
And I want us to see that this isn't just Balak's strategy. It's, it's, it's deeper than that. This, this is Satan's strategy. And it's been throughout history. I mean, look at our world today. I don't have to give you statistics. I don't even have to describe all the, the, the realities and, and all the facets of life in which this tsunami has come in and just brought wreckage, massive wreckage to marriages. It's hurt families. It's wounded and scarred the self-worth and identity of millions. It has left a trail of victims, of wounded, abused, raped, broken people. And one of the things I think we forget in all of this, because we don't know history as well as we should, is that before God gave the world Torah, there really was no sexual ethic. You just stop and think about living in a world where there's no sexual ethic. I think today we still have the fumes of this Judeo-Christian ethic that, that still are, are, are in our culture, but there was no sexual effort, uh, ethic un, un, until God gave Torah. And throughout history, I think central to Satan's strategy, it's centers around sex, sexual immorality. Because what Satan hates more than anything is not just the human being, but the reason why Satan detests the human is because God made the human in his image. And Satan hates the image of God that is in us. And he is hellbent I'm doing whatever it takes to destroy that image that God has placed within us. And I think sexual immorality is one of the great destroyers of the image of God that has been placed within us. And he feeds the world the most clever propaganda, just like with Eve in the garden. <laughs> Did God really say that? Is this really that bad? How can something that is so good and pleasing to the eye be bad? Now, as our world descends into this ancient sexual ethic, because it is descending very, very fast, where there is no ethic, there is no right or wrong, I think we need to hear what God has to say about sex in his word. And there are two fundamental things that, that we need to hear what God has to say. The first is this, God created sex. God created it. Sex is his idea. I mean, think about how God fashioned our bodies. He fashioned our bodies for sex. God created within all of us a sexual appetite. I'm gonna take issue with him someday when I, when I see him face to face. I'm gonna be like, you didn't need to give us that much appetite, but. Uh... <laughs> and if sex is, is God's idea, then, then how could it be dirty? Which is what Satan sometimes wants us to think. Sex is sacred, sex is holy, sex is set apart, sex is glorious. Do you want me to keep going? <laughs> sex is good, sex is beautiful, according to God. I could take you to so many places like Proverbs 5. Listen to Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. May your fountain be blessed. That's talking to a husband. That's talking about that aspect of a husband. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. 
You're like, wait a second, I didn't know I was coming to church to hear that today. That's God's word. That's God speaking about the joy, the beauty, the glory, the sacred aspect of sex. The pleasure, the, the intoxication, all of it. Song of Solomon. I mean, read that book sometime this week. I mean, we spiritualize this book and say, yeah, this describes Christ's love for the church, which it absolutely does, but the, fir- but the, but the book first celebrates the joy of sex. And I've yet to find a translation that tells us what this book really says because, I don't know, do we think sex is dirty that we can't hear it on its own terms? I mean, read Song of Solomon even right now, verse chapter five, and, and, and you will know exactly what I'm talking about. God made sex for, for joy and for pleasure. But here's the second thing that we need to hear, and we need to hear it, because our world today is screaming its messages about sex at us. So I'm going to whisper God's. God made sex for marriage. That is from cover to cover in our Bible. No sex before marriage, no sex outside of marriage. I mean, think about the very beginning of the story, the story of creation. Creation, if you don't know this, it ends with a wedding with God walking Eve, his magnum opus, down the aisle to Adam. And it doesn't only end with marriage, but this marriage also ends with the act of sex. A man shall leave their, fa- their family and cleave unto each other, and the two shall become one flesh. This is what it means for the two to become one flesh. It, 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 it's It's talking about sex. However, we're not just talking about something physical as our world sees sex. But God is describing this mysterious, amazing union between two distinct selves who now become one. So one in, in a way that, that, that it mirrors the, the Trinity where, where we say about God, three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but so bound together, so unified, one God. And the reason for this oneness between a man and a woman is because a man will leave. A woman will leave. They're, they're, they're gonna give up living life for themselves and they're gonna cleave. They're gonna make the life promise to that person, all that I have, all that I am, I give myself to you. And see, it's within this context of two people who give themselves completely to each other, all that I am, all that I have, I give myself to you, that God places sex And here's what people want today. People want sex where they can give their bodies and not their self. Because like with so many things, we want to keep control. We want to maintain our autonomy. And so uh, people withhold their self uh, as they share their body. And it's no wonder then in this, that sex feels dirty, that it feels cheap. We have such a low view of sex today. And there's actually a lie in this because, again, I do believe that this is all part of Satan's strategy and he is the father of lies. It's actually impossible to give only your body and not yourself in the act of sex. I mean, in all my years of being a youth pastor, and then after being a youth pastor over college and 20-somethings, and I counseled so many people, uh, and, and after their, sometimes after a breakup with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, uh, they, they would say something like this, I just felt so married to that person. And they didn't know what they were telling me when they were saying that to me, but I did. You're, they're basically saying, yeah, you, you, you had sex with them, right? So I'd ask them, did you have sex with them? Nine out of 10 times, yeah, I had sex, we had sex. Gotta hold out that 10% for those who are dishonest, but that's okay. 
makes us feel married. And why is that? Because hello, God places sex within marriage. Every time that we have sex with some, someone, whether we're saying this or not, we're communicating with all that I am and all that I have, I give myself to you. I used to do this too in youth ministry because you, you have to pull out some, 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 some word picture gimmicks to, to try to communicate. And I, I'd, I'd put two pieces of duct tape Tape together, and then I have someone, you know, come up and try to rip those things apart. And of course, it's it's so hard to tear that apart. And and a lot of times, pieces of one side of the duct tape were stuck to the other, and and vice versa. That's what happens in the act of sex. Pieces of ourself are 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 put within that person, and pieces of that self are put within us. I mean. It's because of how God made us, how God fashioned us, and, and, and the place of sex in this. And so who, anyone who, who, who isn't married right now, and I'm not just talking to young people because there's also old and older people who are also um, in, in that boat. Here, here, here's my word right now. Please, I beg you, listen to God's word. Sex is not dirty, Sex is not just another appetite. We're not animals. God designed sex for marriage. And when, when sex is placed with, within the confines of a covenant between two people who are bound together, it's beautiful. It's life-giving. But when it's done outside of, of marriage, it hurts. It wounds. There are destructive elements to it. It damages. And we can listen to our world and what our world says and we can bark up that tree. I promise you, you'll find out how bankrupt and how wounding and how damaging it is. Or you can save yourself a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, and listen to God and go his way. G.K. Chesterton, the, the, the British thinker of the 20th, 20th century, phenomenal thinker, he said this. He said, when you remove a wall, you better first ask why it was put there in the first place. You know, age-old walls are being torn down these days, and no one's asking why was this wall put there. We have yoked ourselves to Baal of Peor, and we are in danger of destroying ourselves and everything that's good. In fact, our sexual ethic today, it's suicidal. And that's why God's response to this is, is, is so strong. God hates sin because he sees the damage it does. And so look at verse four. God says, okay, this is what I want to happen. I want you to impale the leaders in broad daylight. Woo! Look at what Moses does. Verse five. He basically tells the leaders of each tribe, I want you guys to find who's guilty and let's put those guys to death. I want us to see the difference in what God says and what Moses says. Moses is holding the guilty responsible. God is holding the leaders responsible. Here's the deal, someone has to pay for this. And God is saying, I want the leaders to stand in the place of the people. I'll tell you, there's a huge application even in this. Because leadership is shouldering the weight of responsibility for the people that we lead. God always holds leaders responsible. He holds his shepherds, he holds his kings, his elders, he holds parents responsible for the people that they're leading. Anyone who aspires to, to be a leader also 
better uh, in their mind and hearts also be willing to die for the sins of the people that they are leading. Listen, Moses did this. Moses begged God, God, blot me out for the sake of the people. Paul did this. Paul says, God, God, wipe me out for the sake of the people. A good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Can't become a leader. You can't become a shepherd, a pastor, an elder, a, a participant in God's family if you aren't willing to die for the sins of the people. I'm telling you, this is so ingrained even to the Jewish people to this day. I mean, they look at a text like Isaiah 53, which for us is a text about Messiah, the suffering servant, um, who will lay his life down. By his wounds, we will be healed. His death is what will make atonement for the sins of the people. You know what Jewish people say? No, that's us. They say, we're not just responsible for the sins of, of, of the Jewish people. We are, we are responsible for the sins of the whole world. Now, while I don't hold to that thought, I respect it, especially as we live in a day where people can hardly take responsibility for their own sins. <laughs> so verse six says, Israel gathered at the tent of meeting. What's the tent of meeting? The tent of meeting, this is God's tent. This is God's garden, and the people are, are, are there. They're, they're all gathered. They're, they're weeping, and what are they weeping over? They're weeping over the sin, um, but, but not just sin, but it's, it, it's, it's what sin does. And we can become so flippant with sin. I want to say this the right way. Not all suffering is the result of sin, but when we choose to sin, we are also choosing to suffer. Sin leads to suffering. Israel's weeping. As they're weeping, an Israelite boldly walks arm in arm with this Midianite gal that he's gonna take into the tent and fornicate with. And Phineas who's the grandson of Aaron, Aaron being the high priest, he can't stand to watch this anymore. And he goes into this tent where this Israelite man is fornicating with this Midianite princess and with spear in hand thrusts it into them. In fact, verse eight, the original language reads this way. As they went into the tent and Phinehas pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her tent, and that's a whole play on words. And verse eight also tells us that, that Phineas's act here checks the plague, it stops it. Because in conjunction to this sin, 24,000 people have died as a result of the plague produced by this sin. I don't know what this plague is, but it's interesting to me to think about that today there are still plagues associated with sexual immorality that have no cure, but we don't talk about this. Wow, I'm saying a lot of politically incorrect things today, but we're gonna keep plowing here. What I find kind of interesting, too, is uh, this book is called Numbers. The reason it's called Numbers is because there's a counting of the Israelite people at the beginning of Numbers, and then another counting at the end of Numbers. There's a counting before this story, there's a counting after this story. And in each of these countings, it's not just a counting of all the Israelites, but it's also a counting of each of the, the number of the 12 tribes. And when you look at the number of each tribe uh, at the beginning of Numbers and the, the, the number of each tribe at the end of Numbers, they're all about the same or they increase. However, there's one tribe that decreases by about 24,000 and it's the tribe of Simeon. And look at verse 14. The name of the Israelite who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Salu, the leader of a Simeonite family. Now it's out of this story that a new kind of Israelite emerges. It's a zealot. 
In fact, look at verses 11 to 13. Phineas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, for he was as zealous as I am for my honor among them, so that in my zeal, and again, this is God talking, I did not put an end to them. Therefore, tell him I'm making a covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. The word for zeal in, in, in Hebrew is kena or kana. It's translated throughout our Bibles as either zealous or jealous. God will say, I am kana. I am a jealous God. What kana means, it, it, it simply means this, this intense passion. And what God saw in Phineas was this intense passion. And he says, this man is filled with my passion. Now, by the time of Jesus, uh, there's going to be a whole sector of Jews that are going to call themselves the Kanahim. Uh, they're going to call themselves zealots. In fact, two of Jesus' disciples are Kanahim. They're, they're zealots. Paul, before he met Christ, says how he was filled with zeal um, and, and how that zeal led him to persecute the church. Uh, he is a Kanahim, a zealot. Um, the zealots at the time of Jesus, guys like Paul, uh, they, they root their whole movement in the story that we're reading today. I mean, you can read about this in Psalm 106, 28 through 31, where it describes Phineas and his act. And then it says at the end of it, and the Lord credited, credited this act as righteousness to Phineas. Same thing it says about Abraham. I don't know what you think about this, but today passion can be a scary thing. Um, it can be a dangerous thing because it can produce fanatics, fanatics maybe like Phineas. And I agree that if you just look at this story at face value, I mean, it could provide fuel for the fanatic, but Phineas isn't a fanatic. He isn't the guy who's bombing abortion clinics. He's not the guy who's gonna pick up stones and throw them at sinners. This isn't a story about fanaticism, and we shouldn't use this story to justify any kind of fanaticism. And I want us to see this. First, notice that God loves what Phineas did. So much so that it literally turned God's anger away from Israel, and it stops the plague. Why? Well, God essentially says about Phineas, here is a man after my own heart. Here is a man who burns with the same passion that burns in me. Phineas burns with my jealousy. So God's jealous. Wow, now this thing went from bad to worse. Yeah, God's jealous. He is a jealous God. He says it. But when you think God is a jealous God, I mean, don't think um, of some jealous junior high boyfriend who's petty, overprotective, insecure. Uh, it, it, it's not that kind of jealousy. God is jealous in the same way a husband is jealous for his wife. He is intensely jealous for his wife. God is a husband to Israel. Israel is God's bride. They are in a marriage, and God is jealous for them. I mean, if Libby said to me, you know, Rod, we've been married for 26 years. I, I don't really care if you have other lovers. I don't care if you have other romantic pursuits. I don't even care if you have sex with them. You know what she'd be saying about me? She'd be saying, I don't care. I don't care about you. I don't care about us. And I don't care about this marriage. Because to be a husband, to be a wife, to be in a marriage is to 
have jealous love for the other. And God says, as your husband, Israel, I, I am jealous for you. In fact, that's why the Ten Commandments, which we look at just these rules that Israel is to follow uh, to make God happy, they're, they're really not just rules. Uh, those things were given at, at a wedding ceremony when God came down on a mountain as a bridegroom and Israel approached that mountain as a bride and a wedding took place that day. And the Ten Commandments are Israel's wedding vows to their God. And it begins with, you will have no other gods before me. That is a vow to say there will be no other lovers in this marriage. And God says the reason for this is because I am Kana. I am a jealous God. I am a jealous husband. I am a husband who is ravishly in love with my bride. That's why the greatest commandment is Shema. It's, it, it's to love the Lord alone and to love him with everything we have, with our heart and our soul and all our mind. It's, it's total devotion to God alone because God is totally devoted to us. As a husband is to a bride. Isaiah 62, verse 5, just let this fall on your hearts because I think about this verse when I do weddings, uh, to, 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 to perform a wedding. The best part of every wedding is when the bride's at the back of the aisle. I'm standing up here with the groom. The doors are open. There she is, and I know this guy's heart is just pounding with just love, jealous love for that woman that now is going to walk down the aisle. God takes that image and he says, as a young man, marries a young woman, so your creator marries you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. He loves us that much. Now, when you look closely at verse 6, where it says, all of Israel's weeping at the entrance of the tent. And this, again, is God's tent. And then you get to verse 8, when this Israelite just boldly walks past them with his lover in his arm, and it says into, not a tent, it says into the tent. He just walked into God's tent to fornicate with this woman. And it's the priest's job because that's the garden of God to protect it and to preserve it at all costs. And no one does anything. No one says anything. Everyone's just watching. Even Moses is just standing there passively. And now we're back into the Garden of Eden when, when evil slithers its way into God's garden and tempts Eve with the forbidden fruit. Where's Adam? Because Adam has been instructed to be God's priest and to preserve and protect that garden at all costs. And when you read Genesis 3, verse 6, it tells us that Adam was passively standing right next to Eve as Satan is tempting her, and he's not saying a word. And this is why Phineas's action is not fanatical, it's priestly. Zeal for God's house will consume a priest. It's God's garden that he is called to protect and, pre and preserve. And so where Adam failed to protect and preserve God's garden, Phineas rises up and with the passion of God, risks his life. He's jealous for God. And I'll tell you what Phineas is doing in this one action is he is pointing us to the priests that are all, our hearts all long for, that perfect priest for Christ who perfectly defends God's honor. In fact, it's written about Jesus' zeal for, for God's house, for God's garden will consume him. 
And even more than this, as a perfect priest, he came to this world to turn away all God's anger towards all our whorings, all our perversions, all the sins that we've committed within the marriage with God, of not loving him with everything we have, all the sins outside of this marriage of of loving, loving lesser things and putting other things first. We all need atonement or we're all gonna perish. Because there's a plague greater than any physical plague. It's the plague produced by sin leading to death and decay, and we all deserve the spear, every single one of us. But let me read this, replacing the name Phineas with the name Jesus. Jesus, son of Joseph, the son of God, the high priest, has turned away my anger from my people, for he was as zealous as I am for my honor among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Therefore tell them I am making a covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and because he, Jesus, made atonement for the Israelites." Jesus came to this world to stop the plague. And the way that he stopped the plague, he was the leader of all of us who stood in our place, who was impaled. He took the spear. He didn't come with the spear. He took the spear for all of our sin, all of our defilement. In fact, Hebrew scholar knows something about this text that most Christians don't. This perpetual covenant of peace, this covenant of shalom, the letter right in the middle of shalom is a vav, the Hebrew letter vav. And in every Hebrew Bible, this vav is a straight line, except here, it's broken. The priest literally has to pick up his pen. It's a broken vav. And it goes all the way back because scribes, they, a Hebrew scribe copies the text exactly as they see it. And they say it goes all the way back to the very first time it was written that this letter Vav was broken. And the letter Vav is also the number six. Man was made on the sixth day. So their interpretation that for the peace of God to be brought to God's people, humanity had to be broken that it came at such a great cost. Jesus is the ultimate six, the ultimate man. He was broken, he is the broken vav to give us peace. He's not just the perfect priest, but he's also uh, the, the perfect husband. His love for us is a jealous love He fights for us, he defends us, he washes us, he lays his life down for us. And and, and this love and only his love can beautify us. And it's this love that our hearts ache for and it's this love that he offers. In light of this, I say, where are the Phineases? Because since Pentecost, we are the garden of God. Paul says your body is the garden of God, where God lives. Our marriages are the garden of God. Our families are the garden of God. This church is the garden of God, where God lives, where he makes his home. We are a kingdom of priests, and what are we doing to protect and to preserve God's garden? What are we allowing to just come in? 
What are we just passively allowing, just standing there and watching? What do we need to take the spear to? Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 5, he says, put to death, put to death all pornea, all of it. In Ephesians 5, he says to the church, he says, there ought not be even a hint of pernea among you. Not a hint. Why do we do this? Why do we put it to death? To get God to like us? Because he loves us. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. We don't repent to get his kindness. It's because of his kindness and his grace and his love, his spousal love, his jealous love. God, I pray that there would be massive repentance in my heart, in our hearts, not because we're so good, because you're so good. God, let us see that we cannot become like the world, that we cannot listen to the lies of Satan, that we cannot walk in its ways. We are a people chosen by you to be a holy nation, set apart for your glory to put you on display. God, we have a place to bring our sins, our guilt, our shame, our defilement. God, we can bring it right to the cross and not just experience forgiveness, but as Paul said, there is now, therefore, no condemnation, none, for those who are in Christ. It's your love that washes us and beautifies us. God, may we not be proud, but may we humble ourselves under your almighty hand. Like a man this morning told me, whole life addicted to pornography, at 19 he said he humbled himself he got on his knees and he said God I'm a sinner forgive me I need help and you took the web in which he was entangled God and you set him free thank you Jesus we love you